Welcome to another episode of the Limited Upside Podcast. It is Thursday, Ben. Thursday, March 18th. Thursday, March 18th, Mike. Yeah, that's it. That's the day. Uh, I'm Mike Prada. That's Ben Epstein. And today we are going to do something that we talked about on the last live chat that you may have participated in on Tuesday and was went on the podcast. We're going to try to understand what the heck is this NBA Top Shot thing? How many people have asked you, Ben, like, hey, what, what do you think about this NBA Top Shot thing? Because so many people ask me and I have yeah. no fucking clue. <laughs> well, we're the perfect people to interview someone because we're going to have a lot of questions. And I'll, I'll say this. I, I, I live in a space where too many of my good friends are in finance and uh, I know enough about crypto and NFTs to, to know that I don't want to wait. I, I don't want to uh, lose my money without understanding why. And I want to make money understanding why. And I love sports. And so this combination, and I think we talked about this earlier, Mike, but we like collectibles. You have your cards in front of you. And yeah, so it's kind of, it, but I do. it's itching a lot of, of uh, uh, or I should say it's scratching a lot of itches. And we were fascinated by it, but we're also fascinated by, I think what you would argue is going to eventually affect the actual game itself. The cap of the NBA will have a, a pinging point to what the revenue stream of top shot is. And so I think it's about time that we introduce something that could end up having a long legacy of effect in the game itself. And we are, we're, you know, we're very glad to be joined right now by shocker Saman. Um, I, I hope that I pronounced your name right, man. I apologize if I screwed that up. One thing about the show is we we screw up a lot. So welcome to the show, and you're going to be our expert. I hope you're ready for a barrage of questions. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you pronounced it you know, perfectly. Uh, bring it on. Let's do this. So, awesome, awesome. So Shocker wrote a really good story for Sports Illustrated on the whole Top Shot phenomenon. <laughs> and before we kind of dive into some of the details, because – like Ben said, like every time you peel away a layer of what this is, there's something else that's interesting and some other way we can go. Like you're interested in the uh, effect on the NBA's business. I'm just sort of fascinated by the idea that people buy these things. But shocker, the first thing, and I'm going to sound like your editor here, but I don't care. <laughs> I just I have to. If you can describe what NBA Top Shot is in one to two sentences, how would you do it? Sure. Um NBA Top Shot is a digital trading card forum, basically, right? There are these video clips that are pulled from game feeds that are then either pulled from packs like you would with regular trading cards and then traded from player to player on the marketplace, uh, which is this giant, think like, you know, exchange of cards where you list moments and people can buy and sell mm. and whatever else. And it's it, more it's, than two senses, by the way. Well, you know, that's why I need an editor for it. <laughs> But that sort of does uh, underscore how unique this is, right? Like how how different this is as a as an institution. Totally, it's one of those things too, where it's like on its surface you're like, oh, I, this kind of makes sense, and then you see the amount of money moving with it, and that just kind of puts a pause, and you're like, okay, wait, no, I need a little more explanation. I totally don't understand what's happening here. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the first thing that jumped to me. It's like. There, one, I guess a better question I should say is, uh, I want to start with is, when would an early adopter have started getting into Top Shot? What's the timeline on this? If you can kind of bring us back to when this first starts to explode. And in your piece, you do a great job of, again, dissecting all these little, call it cabinets we're going to open here throughout the course of this podcast. But I want to start with, if you were in that first wave of people to jump into Top Shot and really be able to exploit this marketplace for some serious financial gain, when, when would that have been? Take us through the timeline a bit. 
Sure. So I think I think it's key to say there are probably two of them. The first one was so the Top Shot marketplace opened for the public in October of 2020. And there had been some early beta, like pre-beta, because right now they're still saying they're in beta uh, right. testers uh, that summer, right? Who had been users of uh, Dapper Labs, who were the creators of NBA Top Shot and partnered with the NBA. Uh, some of their previous products, like CryptoKitties, which was the first real NFT marketplace like this. Um, NFT, and by the way, just so it stands for non-fungible. What does it say? Non-fungible. Non-fungible token. token. So basically, what that okay. means is, unlike cryptocurrency, which you know, like. You or I right now, we could get onto an exchange and we could buy, you know, 0.01 of a Bitcoin, right? You can't buy 0.01 of an NFT. It's all or nothing. You can't, there's no fractions there. Mm -hmm. I think of it like a, like an action figure, right? Like I can't buy, you know, uh, Mario's leg. I have to buy Mario. (laughs) Mm. Uh, But yeah, so that first boom, there were a bunch of people who got in then when it was really early on. Uh, One user I like to point out is uh, really the power player of the full Top Shot economy, this guy named Pranksy who was also big in CryptoKitties, who told me he put in, uh, I want to get this right, I want to say $100,000 or $200,000 early on, and then ended up selling that uh, when we spoke in mid-February for $4.4 million. Jeez. Right. Okay. It, and so, but that's like the early, early adoption. People yeah. who came in and bought 1,000 packs or 2,000 packs on day one and opened them all up and had this like immense number of moments and just waited for value to rise. Right. The second boom comes for people who get in right before this really like huge February rush. The people who came in in January. I, I, I mentioned a guy in my story named Daniel Hurtado, mm-hmm. a 38 year old father of four from Central Valley, California, who put uh, at first about 150 bucks and then eventually $2,000 into Top Shot in mid to late January. And by the time of the boom, uh, like the peak on February 22nd, when the marketplace hit its like max number of trades and max number of money moved, uh, his account was valued at $130,000. Not bad. Incredible. Now we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about like kind of what that money means because there's currently an issue where he can't actually access that $130,000 and pull it out. Uh, right. That's sort of the thing, but okay. So stepping back a bit, these are digital trading cards essentially. Yes. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're video clips that are creatively packaged and have beautiful trims. And and the same way, I think it's it's worth noting, um, like you would with your trading cards in front of you, like some are hollow, some are special edition. Okay. Right. Yep. And those within the tiers of, you know, common, rare, legendary, ultimate, which all have different price points, there are different price points within those if you're happen to hit your hands on like a hollow rare or whatever. Right. Okay. So like for example, I'm looking at my Michael a bunch of Michael Jordan cards, right? And I've got, you know, Fleer Ultra, I've got this sort of Skybox Electric Michael Jordan card. That's like an insert. And so there there is a equivalent of that with Top Shot, but the Top Shots are not player cards, they are highlight cards. And that's obviously that allows them to create I mean, there are how many highlights in a basketball game, uh, in a basketball season? Like, the, there you could be infinite. I, I made a joke the other night today that uh, where's the top shot for Russell Westbrook throwing the ball out of bounds at the end of the Wizards Kings game last night? Um, so, <laughs> bottom pass. Yeah, yeah, I understand the appeal of sports cards nostalgically. What is harder for me to wrap my head around is these are highlights that are presumably everywhere. When I got these cards, you couldn't easily access a picture of Michael Jordan with this sort of art, with these stats, with this sort of all this stuff. These highlights are ubiquitous. Like I, 
I think Ben, you show me your Top Shot collection, which included like a, a Donovan Mitchell pass. Like I could go find that Donovan Mitchell pass on NBA.com. I could go find it on Twitter. So help me understand, like what exactly is the appeal to own a highlight? Right. And I, you know, I'm going to, I think the easiest way to explain it comes from this quote uh, from this guy named Franklin Fitch, who I, I talked to, talked to for the piece. And he basically says it like this. It starts with a different understanding of ownership, right? Mm-hmm. So you and I, right, we could Google the Mona Lisa and we could open Google images and see hundreds of thousands of results, right? And we could right click and we could save it to our desktop and we could print it out and hang it on our wall. But we don't own the Mona Lisa. That still exists at the Louvre in Paris. Mm-hmm. In that same kind of logic, this is an opportunity for these people to actually have ownership of some of these, you know, these clips, right? So the guy who paid two hundred eight thousand dollars for a cosmic LeBron James dunk from the Series One 2019, you know, to that person, they own that dunk, right? You can collect them, you can share them. Okay, you, they own that moment. It, that- it's the same way. But they yeah. don't. I guess I'm like struggling. Well, to so they do, though, Mike. Mike, because if you think about this, this is not Dapper by itself. This is Dapper in partnership with the NBA. That is an officially licensed yeah, so product of the NBA. I get that part. Yeah, that part, and I think that is very that's the, interesting. That's the hook. Yeah, and, and the this deal was also negotiated with the Players Association and yeah. with the NBA, right? Yeah, so they right. both get a cut of it. No one was willing to, on the record, tell me what that looked like. But <laughs> it is, it is a sizable amount of money. Yeah. Knowing the promotion that players are now putting into it, I'd imagine, yeah, that it's it's not a it's a pretty right. penny. And yeah. I totally see from the NBA's point of view, like this is a potential gold mine. And oh, absolutely. it also has value beyond financially because it's another avenue to get people interested in the sport. If you absolutely. you might get in via top shot and that might convince you to watch more games. So I, I think for the NBA, it totally makes sense. What I, this concept of ownership is the thing. And I, I admit that like, I'm just struggling to understand this. Right. So when you say like, I own LeBron James's dunk, my first thought is no, LeBron James having completed the dunk owns LeBron James's dunk. How can I possibly own it? Now, I guess the parallel would be like, it, take a, take like a, paper card right a paper card is a collection of a number of other pieces of art grouped together right Mm -hmm. it is a picture there is like a designer there is like sort of numbers and stats there is different logos it's essentially an amalgam of things you don't own each individual thing you own the collection of what's on the card right Mm -hmm. but these are highlights this I, I don't I don't understand. There is no like sort of manipulation of the highlights. No, so, so I think I think it's actually kind of similar though to what you're saying, right? Because okay. you don't own if you have a, if you have a Michael Jordan card, right? You don't own Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan owns Michael Jordan, but you own that picture of Michael Jordan and you own that packaging of Michael Jordan, and you know that if it's a rare card and you've got it minted and you've done whatever else, and if it's one out of a thousand or something, you know that you have one out of a thousand. The cool thing for these people too is so like. Think about if you were to try to sell one of those cards in front of you, right? You would have to pay for transportation and send it to PSA or Beckett and get it graded right. and hope it graded well and then find a place to sell it and find a buyer and whatever else. Here, everything's frictionless. Everything is immediately authenticated. It's on the blockchain. You know exactly how many of them there are. You have a history of them that is public. So where they've mm-hmm. been, where they're at, and where they're going, right? And it can happen instantaneously. And so uh, I'll give an example. Um one of the moments uh, I was an early user of the site, 
Um, and one of the moments I got was a Donovan Mitchell card uh, that I mentioned in the story um, in a package called The Gift, right? Where me and 8,887 other users got this moment and other users got different gift moments, right? Uh, that day they were selling for 70. The next week they were selling for close to 1,000. And so when I put mine up for 760, just because I wanted to you know, rid of it, um, I could just list it. And within five minutes, it was gone. I didn't have to worry about going okay. through all of this extra logistics and this labor right, and whatever right. else. And so, yeah, that, I think that's another way that it's, it's both similar and an advantage to some people over something like a trading card. That I understand. Yeah, I can see how like a trading card for for trading is like just a lot of a hassle. Plus, because you mentioned too, there's like you have to appraise the value, and you know there's there's a lot that goes into that. That part makes sense as far as like trading. I can understand how this is just simpler. Well, and secure. I mean, that's right. the, the, you know one of the most important assets of this whole thing. And again, I am at the very remedial understanding side of this, but still apparently leaps and bounds ahead of Mike. Um, but uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, blockchain, the, the technology of blockchain, everyone should get very familiar with this. There's a good uh, there's a good episode of Vox Explained. Sorry to, to pimp that out, but on Netflix, which does break down blockchain in about 15 minutes, it makes it more understandable. It's a good baseline to actually you know go into these types of conversations. Can and, you? And ultimately, Can you explain yeah. blockchain in like two sentences. I, I will defer to our guest. Yeah, I mean, just I so can, I understand because I, 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 I think because people have tried to explain to me, and it's another thing that I'm just sort of having trouble wrapping my head around. So basically, I'll do my best. Uh, it's a public ledger of okay. every kind of transaction that has happened there, and it is permanent and it is accurate, right? Like. Uh, there's going to be some listeners who know way more than me on this uh, and have known it for years who are going to comment that I'm an idiot here. But um, the the advantage is it's public and it's always accurate and it's permanent. Okay. Right? Like, so it's, it nothing can change there. If Dapper says there are 15,000 common moments of this TJ McConnell assist, that is exactly how many there are. Right? right? And okay. so you can actually also enforce true scarcity. It's not like, you know, wasn't there a scandal, what, a couple of decades ago where some MLB card printer yep. was like one of only few, but they were pumping Riffy. thousands out into the yes, market. Yes, I right? yeah. Like, yep. yeah. So, so blockchain is just a platform to ensure, I mean, you could blockchain anything essentially is what you're saying. Like you could blockchain money, yeah. you could blockchain really totally. anything. And there's a, there's a bunch of, so like Dapper has their proprietary blockchain called Flow. They, their old uh, system used to be on Ethereum, which is also a coin. Okay. Um, but yeah, like Bitcoin uses a blockchain, uh, all these other coins. It's all just like the other versions of this. Okay. Basically. Yeah. That may. Okay. Um, so this explains it. All this explains it why it's a cool, interesting trading marketplace and why it's secure. Maybe Ben, you can help me understand this. So, like, why would why would someone want to own outside of wanting to trade it to make more money? Is there what is the value of actually owning a highlight? You want me to explain this? I or mean, anyone. Like, like I, I just yeah. have trouble understanding that part of it. Like, unless I'm trying to sell it on, which I understand, like, there are a lot well, of that's people. that's a part of it for sure. I, I mean, there's this constantly on marketplace. Imagine that there was an auction that never stopped, okay, for the cards sitting addicting. right in front of you. Right. It's well, addicting. Why? It's addicting like any other type of, you know, uh, any other type of coin or any other thing that is a f- massive fluctuation of value from a minute to minute, moment to moment basis. Yeah. This idea yeah, okay. that they are creating, they're creating waves of the content, the content, the, the, um, 
you know, the actual commodity itself that there is not going to be somehow no more basketball games played starting on a certain date. And so there can continually be more inventory and then they can control the scarcity of said inventory based upon what they want to assess the relationship to the player itself, the type of moment that it is, the type of packaging, this idea that there are lots and lots of different iterations that can go into something that is as very simplistic and understandable, like a moment in a basketball game is, is not just addicting, but it has like a low barrier for initial entry of understanding and a high threshold for how that can matriculate okay. into both money and, and ownership uh, as well. And so, okay. you know, I think it combines a lot of things that, that sports fans innately kind of move themselves into collecting things, this idea of I was there or I had, or you name it, right? It's why you keep your, your ticket stubs and your, um, you know, and the collectible cup that, you know, from whatever the game you went to, it's, it's not much different than that. It just manifests itself in a very specific way that we look at the game and that's via the highlights. I mean, let's be real. There, there is an extreme interest in 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 i in like i'll tell you this in owning your player you like or the type of game or type of uh, uh moments that you're into whether that's assists or dunks or whatever and then because they're able to do just like you have in front of you mike if you have a thousand cards in front of you they all come from different packs from different sets from different years etc and that idea here it's the same thing like there are a lot of ways that this is not too dissimilar but then extremely, you know, futuristic, if you will, if you were opening up that pack of cards in 1994. Um, Shocker, is that, you know, am I hitting on yeah, some of the... Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's one thing too that I think you, you touched on briefly that I think is really yeah. important here, yeah. uh, which is ego, mm. right? So <laughs> even if, no, seriously, if, we're, if we're talking about even just like physical trading cards. So in December, I mentioned in the piece, in December, uh, PSA graded 10 Michael Jordan rookie card, right? Went for $230,000. Or 215, something around there. Hmm. Uh, and then a month later, it sold for three times that at almost three quarters of a million dollars. Why would someone pay for that? Yeah, part of it's the money and part of it's the investment and the idea that it's going to keep uh, increasing in value and they can sell it for a profit. But the other part of it is just the pure ego of being able to say, I own the $750,000 Michael Jordan PSA 10 rookie card. That's Absolutely. huge. And as as to a, p- a point I wanted to make, Mike, about, you know, like, having trouble understanding like the money moving here, right? Because that really is for a lot of people, including myself early on, and even still sometimes now, the sticking point. Like, why are these worth so much money? Right. And uh, uh, Mike McCoy, who is an adjunct professor of emerging technology at Thomas Jefferson University, who I spoke with for the piece, gave me this really cool example, which was basically like, if you see a used car sell for $10,000, that makes sense to you because you've seen it happen a hundred million different times. A hundred million cars have sold for ten thousand dollars, right? Uh-huh. But this other thing is so new that just the idea that that kind of money could move for this new thing that you don't have as much experience with, or as much understanding with, or relationship with, or whatever else—that in and of itself is a roadblock to like to understand why it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Just absolutely. It, yeah. yeah. It's so new. It's such a brand new idea you know ben, ben you made a really point that kind of a it started to click for me right because my my initial follow-up question to both of you is going to be well what's so special about a highlight why can't like like i've got this pen right here right i could say <laughs> that this pen is worth a certain amount of money and like the market could someone could buy it for whatever amount of money and then suddenly we sort of speak into existence but there is an interesting emotional component to it um and it, it gets to something that I think is very interesting that you talked about in your story, Shocker, about collectibles in general. I may not 
the the experience of like like take Donovan Mitchell, right? Donovan Mitchell is a player that is really a thing that I and other fans experience on TV. You know, he's a lot of times you think of him more as like kind of a character in a show or something than any for a lot of fans than anything. It's sort of you don't know Donovan Mitchell, but there is something about like kind of he represents something, whether if you're a Utah Jazz fan and he represents some of this emotional component. So every time he does something cool, that triggers some psychological memory of what he's associated with. And in that way, it's similar to actual cards. And the only difference now is that the mechanism for triggering that emotion is now a highlight that moves rather than a still picture in a collection of whatever. For sure. And sure. one thing that I found pretty consistently in my reporting is these collectors who got into it, the first cards they buy or they try to buy are of their favorite players, right? And then, especially the ones who got in before the boom, when you could get, you know, a LaMelo ball card for like $12 or you mm-hmm. could get, right. you know, a non-LeBron or non-whoever else for, for relatively cheap. And then after that, you know, as the market size kept increasing and, you know, uh, Daniel Hurtado, the guy I mentioned before, um, saw himself, he, he's, a, he said, you know, I'm not going to rebuy a player. I'm not going to chase my favorite players for $800, $1,000. I'm going to look for value and I'm going to mm. try to flip things. He's as yeah. much an investor now, <clears throat> pardon, he's as much an investor now as he is a collector. Ah, yeah. see, and so see, this is interesting. For a lot so of people, it starts it as a passion. Like exactly. yeah. And then you, you get into it. And, oh, I see what you're saying. I mean, and, that's, and that's not to say you, you can't still do collecting. It just, it takes a little more money than it used to. Yeah, and it might, you know, all of look. Uh, unless you're flush with cash, you know, it uh, it might be a little hard to say. No, no, no. I'm just going to get the players I like, rather than no. I'm going to get the players that I might be able to, you know, like pay rent with. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I see. What a so moment. That is a okay. So now it makes it. It's starting to click for me now. It starts as <laughs> an emotional connection, and then you get deeper into it. Now, one of the things you mentioned in your story that I thought was really interesting, or one of the themes of your story, and I'm is that it's not just digital collectibles like Top Shot that are exploding. Actual card values are experiencing a renaissance. Modern art, in some ways, art trading is experiencing a renaissance. Do you think there's something... What do you What do you kind of attribute that to? Is there something about these times, the pandemic, the social... The, the changing nature of social interaction the changing nature of ownership is there some larger force in your mind that may be driving that in general collectibles are becoming a a booming again in 2020-2021 absolutely you know um so uh, a couple of people i spoke with um really kind of hammered home this idea that you know interest rates are low so investments aren't you know as as a typical investment opportunities aren't as say appealing as they might have been so people are turning to alternative investment methods like cards or like nfts digital art whatever else or even regular art because they're looking for different places to put their money and of course to be able to do that requires having that kind of money in the first place right yep. but um for the people who do it, it's, it's doing that i also think that so like the pandemic certainly plays into it because more money is flowing around than ever um but i think the other part of it actually has to do with where a lot of these NFT folks are coming from. So like one of the things I'm always asked about on Top Shot is like, is this regular people or like who is doing this, right? Who is spending this kind of money? And it's kind of both. It's there's a large section of people who were like in the NFT world, right? Or were crypto evangelists who made a bunch of money there 
and are now like, this is the next thing. And like, I have money, so I can put a couple thousand down on a fascination and see if something happens with it. Or if they're really gung-ho about it, can invest a bunch more. Um, at the same time, yeah, there, there are the regular folks like us who are just like, oh, this is neat. Let's see what this looks like. And then get it hooked by the amount of money into it and then you know empty our bank accounts. Uh, I think the fear, at least for me, and I have no idea of knowing this is true or not, is like, you know, like with the GameStop thing that happened a couple months ago, because I think that's another really good analogy. Like people, certainly there are going to be some people who bought really high on February 22nd when the marketplace peaked and are like, this is my ticket to glory. And then now that the marketplace is a lot lower than that now uh, are like, well, I'm out a bunch of money, you know, probably based on the rest of the NFT market and what we've seen just in digital art um, and trading cards, like and Top Shop's going to continue going up and that $47 million marketplace peak from the 22nd is going to look like, you know, a blip in the rear view right. uh, in, in a, a year or so. And that's what a lot of people are banking on. But for now, in the short term, it can be kind of scary. Yeah, I also absolutely. And I also think that there's this relationship to opportunity when you have sharks, you know, in the water. And I say sharks in, in a respectful sense here, people who make their money um, finding market inefficiencies, finding new places to put their money where they know that there's going to be some kind of, again, escalation in the price or whatever you want to call it, uh, where there's money to be made. And in this case, this is a, a two front uh, uh, a war because you're going to have people who have the emotional relationship to liking a team to wanting to collect. And then you're going to have the other side of it, which is people who fully understand NFT, NFTs, who fully understand and look at this in a completely objective way. The, the player on the card means nothing. The only thing that you're looking at is the evaluation of what a, B, C, D means, and then how you use that and what you think that is going to go up to or down to and when the best time to sell it is. It's just regular market relationship or, or in, in, honest, in, in all truthfulness here, it's just what uh, this is. This is what the stock market is. This is what any other marketplace is. That's why it's, I like that it's called a marketplace and it's not like when you talk about trading cards, you're not going to like an exposition or whatever, uh, whatever it's called, expo you know, you're not, expo. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're not going yeah. to some big place with lots of people and everyone's like, I'm a fan of this. And I remember when I got my first card and it's like that exists in this space and it's probably going to be, I'd imagine weeded out relatively soon um, by folks who are just here to make money or, or see this as an opportunity. Shaker, I wanted to ask you when you wrote this piece, what questions do you still have? What are the, what are the, what are the outstanding thoughts in your brain after diving into this interviewing so many people? What, what questions do you, if you were doing a, a second to follow up, would you be asking? Yeah. I mean, like the, the biggest one for me is, is I kind of alluded to it a little bit ago. Is just what mm. happens in a year, mm. right? Is this going to be in in both on the market? How does it affect the NBA financially? How does it affect all these other things, right? And we can get into the actual numbers in a little bit, but like yeah. the the whole thing, like I because I I you know I started reporting this in late January. I've been with Top Shot now for a month and a half, and it's basically the only thing I've thought about. And so the question that I had early on is like, why would someone spend money on this? How does this make sense? Like. Aren't these also on YouTube, all that other stuff? I've kind of like moved past that. I, I understand mm -hmm. it. I might not, I might not be the person who's about to be like, yep, uh, that that paycheck that's going straight into Top Shot, right? I'm not yeah. an analyst, <laughs> but at the same time, I I get why people get it. Yeah. The bigger thing to me is like, what is the next step of this look like? What is 
what is the next level of this? Like if we if we don't want to talk about like NBA integration, they announced the rising stars rosters on yeah. Top Shot and then released yeah. the pack a week later to accompany it, right? Like today they dropped or may, yeah, I think all they stars. just dropped an all stars pack, right? Yep. For $229. Like uh where maybe you'll get uh a Damian Lillard or a LeBron and that's you know your $229 investment just paid for your kids' college tuition, yep. right? Like yep. um the amount of money moving is crazy. And pack sales are so those $229 packs or $9 packs or whatever else, anything that comes straight from Dapper is pure profit for Dapper and their partners, the NBA, the PA, other investors, whoever else, right? Uh, after that, marketplace sales, uh, 5% of every marketplace sale is taken to the same profit stream. So, you know, pack profits aren't public. Um, Dapper CEO, uh, Roham Garlagozu, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Nice fella. Um, told me that their um, rare drop from a couple of weeks ago uh, had 6.5 million in sales. So that's 6.5 million in profit in the afternoon, right? But if you want to look at like the marketplace, for example, yep. uh, I mentioned in the piece uh, on February 22nd, that was 47 million. Uh, if you, I have the math here, so I just want to make sure I got it right. Um, if you were to assume that every day looked like that, right? For an entire year, 47 million, not a penny more, not a penny less. No, obviously we've been less since, um, 5% of total marketplace sales would be $850 million. Mm. Now I don't have percentages of what the cuts are, but I, I'd assume that something like 50% is not a crazy number for the NBA to take off of that off of licensing no. and whatever else. Right. I mean, $400 million is enough to move the capital a little bit. It's enough to yeah. mess with league business. It's enough to influence oh. how they move moving forward. And I mean, you saw Mark Absolutely. Cuban and Joseph Sai and a couple other owners now started this like, blockchain advisory subcommittee where the NBA is going to look out and to find new blockchain projects because the yep. fact of the matter is like it's going to rake in a bunch of money. I, I tried speaking to Mark Cuban. He didn't have much time for me, but one <laughs> thing he did say was like, it's not on the piece, but like, no, hopefully blockchain can make, can mint the NBA a bunch of cash. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and look, this is also potentially, and I know they push back on Spencer Dinwiddie now, but there are, you know, uh, I believe there's a offensive tackle in the NFL. I'm blanking on his name. It could be Okun, uh, blanking on his name though, um, who converted his contract to Bitcoin, right? Uh, this, this idea that blockchain, uh, crypto, um, you, you name it, right? Like in this conversation we're having could be the future of how your contract is put together. Not just that it affects the cap, which it, it will. I mean, there's there's no world in which the NBA is bringing in an additional $400 million and that's not somehow affected the cap by well, five to 10 per team. I don't think so, Mike. Well, I, mean, I, I actually have a question about that. So okay. um, is this considered basketball-related income and will it be shared with the players? So I'm not sure. I know for a fact that the PA did also negotiate with Dapper. Again, I don't know what those numbers are either, but I, I they, they have some sort of cut. Mm. Um, neither the NBA, the, the NBA and the PA said they declined to comment on any financial partnerships. And Dapper only was willing to say that, like, you know, anytime something with the players is involved, we have to negotiate on that because they own the licenses, right? right? right. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, your typical, like, legal whatever. Um, I, I, I would have to assume just based on my reporting and based on what I found that, you know, the, the, the PA is getting a cut and the NBA is getting a, probably a more sizable cut. Um, and just from there, it's just a matter of, I, I, I don't know what the, right. if it would affect the cap or be negotiated in a CBA, but 
eight, you know, a couple hundred million dollars is going to, at the very least, affect league business. Yeah, and I mean the the battle over who who gets that money is going to be just a fascinating thing to play out if yeah. this is going on over the long haul. You know, if for you're... sure. One thing that I started to cut you off. The one thing too on that note was um, speaking to a couple of different architects of Top Shot. They all assume that eventually the graph would look like a hockey stick, right? It would be flat and then there'd be a spike. But no one, be it from the NBA or the PA or Dapper, thought it would happen this soon, mm, right? right? Like I think the NBA thought like, hey, maybe this is a cool thing and maybe it grows a little bit and over time it becomes potential revenue source. And then over the course of a couple months, they were seeing tens of million dollars move every day. Yeah, I mean, it's it really is crazy how quickly it's grown. It. it that actually brings me to the other set of concerns and some of which you've raised in the piece and some of which we can talk about now. I mean, the the impact on the NBA's bottom line and the NBA's sort of interest in getting in on this is so obvious to me that it almost slaps you over the head. Like, it's just uh, like this could make them so much money. Maybe it will convince them to shorten the season like they finally should because they have other revenue streams. A man can dream. Uh, but one of the challenges that you talked about is you know one is because it's growing so fast is this really secure is this you know there's been issues with the servers being overloaded correct with uh, too many people trading and people only a select few can take their money out right now uh and that is something that has doomed a lot of online adjacent fields like online poker had a problem like this right with um was it poker stars what was the what was the company that um I'm not sure there was something involved with online poker where there was like kind of money was being sort of siphoned off uh and there was another interesting thing that just happened in soccer what was the name of the soccer trading stockholm thing where there's an issue i forget what it's called uh where users couldn't take their money out either You've also talked to experts in cybersecurity and finance who say, you know, this is a potentially dangerous place where large sums of money can be laundered uh, illegally. What do you think is the biggest concern from a sort of compliance standpoint with Top Shot? Right. You know, so the the one thing I want to stress, too, is um, Top Shot was pretty forthcoming with the the kind of like where the security was and where it is now and the kind of way they've scaled up right like uh around the time that i first spoke to their ceo in early february uh they had one person working the compliance and the cash out right because there wasn't as much money into it and then over the next month things exploded uh when we last spoke at the end of february or it might have even been the first week of march um they'd had a full team staffed out they were working with people who used to work in bank security and people at paypal and they had uh, an MSB, a money services business partner um, to, to help move the money, right? And so now they are, you know, and they, they'd always been trying to do, the reason people could withdraw early on was um, even though Topshot isn't regulated as a money service business or a virtual asset service provider, which are basically the same thing, just places where money moves from fiat currency to crypto and vice versa, uh, they were still doing these KYC, know your customer checks, which is basically saying like, Hey, this this guy who says he's Mike Prada, he's actually Mike Prada, right? He's not funneling money to terrorists, or he's not laundering money for as an arms dealer or whatever yeah. else. He's not Mike Prada. Prada, pardon. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm just kidding. I'm messing with uh, you. Uh, but yeah, he. Uh, so so they've been doing that, and um, you know, already we've seen more and more people be able to withdraw. 
when I was, you know, in the middle of February, it was 6,000. Uh, last week, it was something like 12,000. I think in the piece now, we wrote 17,000 something. They're, they're scaling up to a point where they told me that within two months, uh, everyone should be able to withdraw or what they call like low risk accounts. So things, accounts that when reviewed don't have flags, um, or at least should be able to start the withdrawal process. Because once they tap you to be able to start your KYC, there's a 30 day identity check. Like for example, like I've been on it since early January, I still can't withdraw. Um, they told me this withdrawal process doesn't come by like who's spending the most money. It's just like, or who's been there the longest. It's just a certain activity threshold has to be met. Uh, yeah. I'm not really trading. And so they're not like, Hey, like <laughs> let me your driver's license. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, the, okay. yeah, I posted a link to the stock, football stock market. thing. It's called football index. Have you guys heard about this story? No, I have. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's essentially, as I understand it, it's like a service that allowed you to buy stock in soccer players, essentially. <laughs> but there have been issues. There's a big issue now where they they almost maybe you can explain a little better than me. But as I understand it, there's a lot of money that people have put into the platform that is now trapped there because they, it's a very similar situation to Robinhood, right? Right. I think, I think that's, it's, a, it's slightly different than what's going on with Top Shop, but I think it is a closer analogy to, to uh, Robin Hood in that sense. Uh-huh. Okay. Like there's no like instant sell and stuff like that. Right. With, with Top Shop, the issue is basically like your money's in there, right? Like you moved it into a, a third party wallet hosted by Dapper. Um, it's all in USDs. It's there. Um, you're just not allowed to pull it out yet. And now they're scaling up to hopefully allow you to do that. Uh (laughs) And the reason it's taken so long is because of these manual checks and attempting to make sure that, you know, money laundering and stuff like that isn't happening. And while, you know, and and to be completely straightforward, like we couldn't find money laundering. We we checked, we consulted with experts and they just simply said like, hey, there are a couple things that we're seeing here that could raise concern. That Uh would be red flags in the regular money laundering and anti-terrorism world. Got it. Yeah, man, it's like the kind of thing that you wouldn't see now, but now that but as it gets bigger, you're going to have more people who are more creative at potentially sort of bypassing these situations to launder. Is that a fair way of putting it? That's a fear. I would think so. I mean, the the thing is, they Dapper seems to be really on the ball, right? Like if okay. you, for at, at the beginning to withdraw, like if you any of the three of us wanted to withdraw right now, our earliest withdrawal max is a thousand dollars. Right, we can't withdraw anything more than that. And as we become a more trusted user, that max goes up and goes up and goes up, and eventually we can pull out more money, uh, which is you know a really good kind of uh, choke point to try to make sure that bad actors aren't happening. Yeah. The IDs thing is a great choke point. The uh, any any these like SAR thresholds, uh, suspicious activity report thresholds, and different tracing are all really good checkpoints. They're doing their homework. They're doing what they're supposed mm-hmm. to be doing, um, and you hope that that continues. So. Shocker, having spent months here on this piece, researching, interviewing, uh, being a part of it, being a part of the marketplace in, in your own right and as an early adopter, what, I guess my question is, are you more or less a fan of, of the product now and of the future of the product now that you know more than the average person, far, far more than the average person here? If you were to do it again, would you be more or less inclined to jump into Top Shot? I think I think my arc probably would have been pretty similar. I would have maybe at the beginning when I first found it, packs were available. You didn't. It yeah. wasn't like this long queue. Was like I would have bought a bunch, right? And I would have put 
probably the same amount of money I ended up putting into it, you know, $150, $200. Sorry. <clears throat> um, and then I just would have had a, a bigger payout. Uh, but at the same time, I think I would have come to the point I am now where I, I talked to my editor about this. He, mm-hmm. after reading my, you know, so many drafts of the story, <laughs> making it so much better than it deserved to be. Um, <laughs> he's now like, I bought, he's like, I bought the rising stars pack and I'm going to probably buy the all-star pack. And I got the pre-order <laughs> pack and I did this and this and this. And I put all this money in and I'm like, I'm ready to cash out. I'm done. I'm no more top shot. <laughs> really? It- I, I don't, I don't have the stomach for it. I'm the same person who I made like, like $200 in a day on like GameStop during the rise. And I was like, Oh, I should get in more. And then I just kind of stopped. And was like, Nope, I don't have, I okay. saw it drop the, the price drop by like $2. I was like, I don't have the stomach for it. Let me get my money. And like, <laughs> so, okay. So for you, it's, it's not necessarily a matter of this seems more or less legit. You just, you're, you're just not someone who is a gambler is what you're saying in the same way or, yeah, you know, I'm I'll, I'm a big, you know, take me to Vegas and you'll see me play a couple different tables and put a bunch of money down <laughs> right, on sports. Right. It's more like, it's more like with this, nothing I've seen has shown me, based on the rest of the market and the NFT market, like you, it, it's grown to the point where like, you know, Christie's just auctioned off a piece of digital art by an artist named Beeple for $69 million. It's the third <sighs> most expensive piece of art by a living artist ever sold at auction. Jesus. Jesus. Digital artists are like... I, I put it in a accompanying video with the piece. Uh, Matt Caesar, who's a Cardinals outfielder, got mm. a digital art in February alone. He made thirty five thousand dollars selling Jeez, art pieces. That's right? amazing. Like for a guy who's still, I think, in arbitration years. Like yeah, that's double your whatever salary, right? Um, <laughs> so stuff like that. There's j- like nothing I've seen has shown me that the amount of money moving here won't just either stay consistent or continue to increase. There's nothing to suggest that at least at this point you know, the, this is a bubble and the crash is coming. And I did, well, that was one of the first okay. questions I had. Is this a bubble? What are we looking at? Like, when's it going to pop? Uh-huh, and interesting. It might, you know, plateau, it might dip slightly, but it doesn't seem like the bottom's going to fall out. So in that sense, yeah, I could see Top Shot doing this kind of money for as long as we can think about it. I mean, mm. think about think about how we think about GameStop, right? I think, I think Top Shot could do something similar where like, you know, maybe there's a dip and then we all forget about it or stop caring. In the last couple of weeks, GameStop's come right back up, right? Like, okay. it's still going to be happening on the margins. It just might not be in the middle as the next story comes along. So what's the biggest reason you don't think it's a bubble? You know, just looking at the rest of the NFT marketplace. Okay. Um, and may- maybe maybe I'm wrong and maybe the entire NFT marketplace right. I guess is a that bubble, would be but... the, the concern, yeah. What if NFTs right, in but... general are just bubbles? But you're right. It doesn't totally. seem like that's the case. Totally. Uh, up until now, at least, like, it's been consistent. It's It's the the new money coming into it has you know raised the floor like one thing that i think is you can take trading cards as an example right like so over the past i think year trading cards have gone up by about all trading cards on average have gone up by about 67 percent um and one thing that jeff wilson who is the founder of sports card investor uh kind of forum that tracks the kind of prices here uh told me was that as more what we want to call like big money, whether it be like hedge funds or like groups or big money investors uh, come in, that's just going to just naturally pump more money into the system. It's going to start driving people to it. Regular folks like us who see these big name players and are like, well, if they're investing in it, it probably makes sense for me to put a little bit of money in there. Like you would any other stock. If Warren Buffett recommends a stock, you're going to be like, I want in on that. Right. Right. Um, And so 
you know, maybe, maybe it's a long time before we see another sale, like $69 million for a piece of art or any, that same artist had a $6.6 million one two weeks prior. Um, the fact is that digital art is a real boon right now. And it's right now, maybe, you know, I, I obviously, I'm not a soothsayer. I can't see the future, but like, we're maybe we're still on the way up and maybe it's It's still going and nothing, nothing that we've seen in the NFT space or even in the trading card space. And especially the top shop space suggests that like the rising tide isn't going to keep carrying all the boats. So I guess there's two things I, that come to mind when I think about this as uh, say, I'm going to use the term a casual here, but we all are and to an extent as it's very new. Um, But I guess the two things that, I, that come to mind that could be uh, that could inhibit the the growth of this, or at least the understanding from a larger uh, societal standpoint, are, are two things. One is the stigma, whether it's right or not. I don't think it is either. Around cryptocurrency and uh, and blockchain, and that it is this like an alternative world of future uh, money, and and it, and it has fueled the dark web. And all, again, these are all very very like overarching kind of like themes of negativity that have and and for better or worse been applied to similar spaces and the second is the daily fantasy world the and this is totally different but this idea that we can all go and play a daily fantasy lineup but we know that all the money is going to be won by the people who are using their algorithms and playing a thousand contests a night etc see that that's where i think this might have so and I want to decouple these things. I want to I want to understand that number one, make people, or, or maybe maybe we can't. But is it wrong to think that this is a space that is going to eventually be won by that very very top point one 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 percent, and they will control the market? The volatility will be based upon their ability to, or interest in selling or holding. Or are we to think this is truly a free and very, very open market that will continue to act as that and not be able to be controlled by the power players within it? I guess that's those are the two things that keep coming up as I think about the longer term you know, success and failure of it. So I think there's definitely a risk of that power player thing happening. But if I had to guess, I actually don't think it would just because so like little things, right? So like the biggest way you can find value on Top Shot isn't actually in the marketplace, it's on packs. Yep, right, yep. like a $9 pack, you're guaranteed a couple cards. The cheapest pack of moment, even if you're getting all the worst cards, right? Which isn't typically the case, but if you're exclusively getting the cheapest card, a couple of them, they're selling for like five or $6 right now. So you're guaranteed profit on that. At the mm-hmm. rarer packs, a rare pack costs like $99 at the minimum. And the cheapest rare card is uh, when we publish stories, something like $420, mm-hmm. right? So, and the other thing about that is early on, people were using bots or people were buying yep. more than one pack, right? right? Right now, you can only buy one pack a person. They're, do, they're doing their best due diligence to fight out bots and whatever else, try to keep this barrier for entry low. That way you don't kind of have that situation where you're talking about where a handful, five players can just really set the tone for the entire right. market. They, where now, they, would, they would have like every card. They would be exactly. like way up in the front of the line. Yeah. Okay, that 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 is certainly a huge factor that. Yeah, finish that, uh, finish that point there, Shaker. Ray, I was just going to say that like, you know, that doesn't, that isn't to say that like, you know, if you buy a couple packs, you're going to eventually be like, have the ability to become one of these power players, one of these early adopters who mm-hmm. can throw around a couple hundred thousand dollars, because frankly, that's just not the case. Yeah, like, there's yep. not enough. It's not, you, you don't have the ability now to buy 50 packs for $9, like you did with no competition. Right. Uh, you know, the, any gamble for like, you know, a, another LeBron James card sold yesterday, actually right after my story came out for, I believe, $179,000. 
right? Like there's only a, a small fraction of us who have the ability to be like, oh no, no, I'll put almost two full stacks down on, you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. like that we're not those folks. Um, at least I'm not, I don't know about y'all, but maybe the publishing uh, business is better for you guys. Pretty but. sure that I don't have a full-time job. So that <laughs> Same. So, <laughs> the book, but, uh, maybe the book sales, um, will be so good. But yeah. <laughs> um, so it, I don't think it's something where you'll find this kind of like ruling class of users really setting the tone. But at the same time, um, one thing that uh, Roham uh, Dapper CEO told me is that actually those big power player users do play a role, which is for some people who haven't been able to cash out yet, um, Pranksy, for example, early on was buying people's full accounts, right? Because you can uh, gift moments. So he, they would, he would buy their full account out and they'd gift him all their moments, right? Because he had the, the ability right. to provide liquidity in that way. Yes. And so they do kind of function in that and like letting people come in and out of the marketplace. Now, how much that really matters, I'm, I don't think it matters much. Uh, right. I think at the end of the day, he's just a power user. He's a whale. Uh, and there are a couple other, or, or she, I actually, I've only spoken to Pranksy over DMs. But uh, no, yeah. I think I think the bigger thing is that this kind of like one pack per person on the drops, because that's really the biggest bang for your buck kind of value yeah. is huge. Rookie cards are another one because they'll soon be minted. Series mm. one cards. Right. Uh, yeah. And he, that way, that's no different than actual cards. Yeah, I was going to say, like, exactly. like, there's some, I give us the, I hate to say the the, the overview here, but like, what, what are like the five terms that people who are listening who are like, oh, this is yeah. interesting. This conversation has spiked my interest when I go to Topshop. And it's a pretty well laid out website to their credit. Tons of explanatory aspects to it. You can you can dive into video tutorials. They want to make it, uh, um, you know, an, an arms open website, not, a, you know, an exclusive place that if you don't know every term about blockchain and, and uh, NFTs, you can't even participate. With that in mind, what are some some terminology or some terms I should say that are going to come up and that we should, uh, you know, listeners should keep in mind as they assess value? Right. Yeah. I think, I think there are a couple key things to look at when you're trying to find like, am I spend, spending my money smartly on top shot, right? Number one is just in, in ter- determining the value of a card. Um, when it came out. So the first season that they did this was last season in the 2019-2020 season. Those are called Series 1 releases. A Series 1 card, because those are done printing, those are more valuable than Series 2. Those are limited, the first edition, limited edition, whatever else. They're effectively, if you look at all of Top Shot, if all of Top Shot were one player, those are the rookie cards. You want to get those. So those are more valuable than Series 2, which we're in now. After that, there are tiers, right? So like the most, the easiest one, the cheapest ones are the common cards, uh, where any moment might have 15,000 peers, right? Of the same exact moment. Uh, rare is after that, where I believe the cap is a couple thousand, uh, then legendary, and then ultimate, where I don't even know if I've ever seen an ultimate card, but you know, they're, they're there. After that, you have something, this is a big deal. It makes a lot of sense player. The player it is makes sense. A LeBron James card is going to be worth worth more than an Ish Smith card. No disrespect to Ish Smith, but like <laughs> not on this podcast, okay? Oh, no, yes, he, on this. We, podcast. He was great for the Pistons. He was, and he was good for the Sixers, player. and he's still like the Wizards' most, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, trustworthy point guard. Well, he uh, but he got injured, and they started playing better. That's all I'm going to say. The beauty of it is, no matter who we have on this podcast, Ish Smith has likely played for every <laughs> single one. Okay, go ahead, keep going. You were going LeBron and, more valuable than yeah. Ish. Yes, uh, LeBron more valuable than Ish. So that's that's your next step is what what player it is. Uh, 
after that, they're the serial number matters. So like I said, with a common card, you know, there's 15,000 of the same ones that are printed. Uh, the one that is serial number four is more valuable than the one that's serial number 4,000, just naturally. Now, as, as I kind of pointed out in the story, there are a couple instances where you'll see maybe higher serial number cards sell for just way more than lower serial numbers. Most of those can be explained. Some of them have fishier explanations that we tried to get into and maybe couldn't find a concrete answer on. But generally, low serial number, you're going to have a more valuable card. Mm. And then lastly, there are these, like, I kind of mentioned them, like these kind of like special edition kind of things, like your rising star cards, your all-star cards. Uh, rookies, you know, you are valuable because you're making a bet that like, yeah, I'm going to overpay for a Tyrese Halliburton or a Lamelo Ball or an Obi Toppin because, you know, if they pop off in a couple of years, this card is worth a lot more. Mm. Because the bet is that as the marketplace keeps increasing, you know, it all, even like the cheaper cards you bought are going to keep going up. Right. Yeah, that and that in that sense it's again just sort of like you're a basketball team. <laughs> like yep, you yep. know, um that real quick I had two final questions but real quick is there any sort of difference in sort of the the coolness of the highlight factor for lack of a better term like for example like is is there like the Anthony Edwards if dunk or one of his dunks would that be worth more <laughs> than just sort of a run of the mill assist by Anthony Edwards or is there almost no difference in the type of highlight it is. So I would assume so. I mean, like I, I haven't personally seen that, but like, I would guess that if like, you know, uh, LeBron's missed dunk on Draymond in the finals or whoever was on, uh, yeah. the, the one at the end of game seven, a couple of years ago, if that was for sale, like I bet you would want to buy that more than like a run of the mill LeBron, dunk, right? yes. even though it's a miser or like the, the Kyrie dagger from the end of that game would be more valuable than another Kyrie. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, to Top Josh credit, they're pretty good about packaging stuff like that. So, like, like I said, you know, there's the cosmic, the, that two hundred eight thousand dollars is a cosmic LeBron. It has different artwork on the side. It has different trim. Uh, they have like, you know, the All Star packs are going to have a different kind of side right. logo. The Rising Stars ones, and beyond that, even like, they released a pack last year for Giannis's MVP moments. See, right? that, that's, that's like interesting. Different big yeah. MVP moments with him, and that one was really interesting. So on the night of the twenty first. Uh, my girlfriend was like, oh, maybe I'll get into this. You've been talking about this nonstop and she's got a little more cash than I did to throw around. She's like, maybe I'll buy this one for $1,300. And she ended up not doing it. But out of curiosity, we checked the next morning and it was selling for $4,500. It would have made a lot of money. Yeah. Would have made a lot of money, but it's, yeah. So there are, there are some that are more creatively packaged. Um, you know, some guys talked about the, how if a guy has a big night, like if Dame goes off for 50, you, you might see a slight pump in his, his cards values just right. across the board. But those are pretty, you know, small and insignificant kind of bumps. Yeah, the the MVP thing is interesting because I could see the league or a team having so many abilities to sort of basically create their own tentpole moments. Like, imagine if if like the Bucks could cut a special deal where it was like to celebrate Giannis's. I mean, not just MVPs, but you could put almost anything, any anniversary. And I think that you've talked about they might start doing classic highlights. I think there are probably some rights issues that they have to work through. They uh, should right. um, they should do a Giannis um, like tough guy pack when he sits down on the court when the other team's best player who usually stuffs uh, right, it in his face <laughs> is sitting on the I'm, sideline. Um, I'm curious just, if you guys if you guys could have any moment from your basketball watching life, what would you want? Great question. Great question. I know. I mean, I know my answer. Uh, I think it would probably be one of the most valuable cards possible when Iverson crossed over Michael Jordan. Um, that's a seminal moment of my life as a Sixers fan. 
or the Iverson step over of, of Ty Lue. I'd imagine both of those would be pretty valuable given his sort of iconic nature in the game itself from a, a social standpoint. Uh, and then just between like, you know, the most incredible, not incredible, the most well-known iconic plays of, yeah. of a, a, a hall of famers career. Mike, what would yours be? Uh, I think my serious answer would probably be the John Wall shot in game six in 2017. Mm. I have uh, an actual shirt with that on it. So yeah, I think fair. I would love the top shot. Uh, my not serious answer would probably be, I just for irony's sake, I think I would enjoy the Michael Ruffin throwing the ball up in the air. No, not possible one or <laughs> the Russell Westbrook throw the ball away against the Kings from last night. It happened those like yesterday. Those that was pretty, pretty good. good. Um, I mean, how, how far off are classic highlights? Cause I mean, those would totally, I have no idea. They, those would just blow like, up blow up the those would really blow up but yeah i i have no idea i mean like so my my throwback would be tayshawn prince's block on reggie oh yeah oh yeah uh, that's great game play. two with the oh, yeah. uh, 2040s conference finals um but as for classics uh i have no idea i it's not something i, I talked about i know they released a 2013 14 couple packs um uh last year that were just like throwbacks uh, and I stumbled onto that because I just searched the word Chauncey Billups because he owns my heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we talk, you think you think Chauncey's ever going to be a Hall of Famer? I hope so. I think Chauncey yeah. and Ben are deserving. Certainly, I think yeah. I think Chauncey, you know, seven straight Eastern Conference Finals with two different teams. I think kind of his longevity. I think the reputation that he has in the league as being like yeah. that guy consistently forever, Mister Big Shot, Mister Whatever Else, and also doing it for so long. I think has earned that i mean he never you know i think he was once top five for mvp voting but sure, he's consistently sure. a two-way star i think ben wallace deserves it as the best defensive player of a generation and maybe the best defensive player of all time mm. um a mm. six eight guy with a two inch yeah. afro yeah. who shut down Shaq on the regular and you know david yeah. robinson yeah and, uh, and you hinted with a title could, you could yeah. ask me sure you could ask me to make a case for like rasheed wallace who is my favorite player of all time uh uh, she uh, unfortunately did not care enough to want to be an, uh, uh, a Hall of Famer, but that's also why I love him so much. I also love Rasheed Wallace. He's one of my favorite players of all time, not just because he's a Philadelphia guy, but he's the guy I bring up constantly who like, if you could sub in one player from about a decade plus ago into today's game, Ooh. I would love to see Sheed play today. Oh my God, he'd be perfect. Uh, go right here. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> It'd be very interesting. We we could uh, we could. Ooh, that's a nice. Uh, you just showed a picture of uh, what is that picture of? That's As that's Rashid a sheet Hawks. Hawks jersey. Oh, yeah, let's see that. One hanging in the other room. Now, talk about. That's- Talk about rare top shots if they could ever make it a Rasheed <laughs> Wallace Hawks highlight. Um, I had just two final things that like I, again I'm trying to play a little bit of devil's advocate skeptic. Uh, on this one is, it's just one company that can make top shots because they have the licensing deal. Whereas I, I'm just using right. the card analogy. There are a lot of different card manufacturers, although many of them many of them have licensing deals with the NBA and other sports. Is there? I wonder if there's sort of is there a monopolistic concern uh, at play here, where so much of the distribution of what we do is literally in the hands of one company? You know, could like it sort of reminds me of sort of the giant social media companies and the overwhelming power they have. You know, is there a lesser version of that that could happen here? I mean, I don't, I don't think it's uh, really an issue. You know, it's it, the NBA is a private company. They chose to license with Dapper because Dapper was a proven player in this field. You know, uh, maybe in the future the NBA decides to like, oh, we're going to do an offshoot product with someone else. Uh, but at the same time, 
you know, it's, it, they're the, the power player there. They've got the, right. the longest track record. It makes sense. They've, they've been able to do it. I know uh, UFC has something coming out with them at the end of the year. Um, you know, the WNBA top shots coming eventually per dapper. And I, there was a report, every, every basically sports league is now going to try to get in on this, right? Right, like, right. It will be tried in 2018 and it failed. Uh, the NFL tried in 2018 and it failed even more miserably. Why do you think that was? Uh, was it was it just too early, or was there is there something about NBA highlights that is just? Sort I think of it's fitting? a combination of things. I think it's number one, um, NBA highlights and NBA players are probably you know I, we're we're not going to mince around here. Like the NFL is the biggest sport in the country. You yeah. know the the least watched NFL game still gets like NBA Finals viewership. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're talking about like because of roster size and because of just aesthetic and whatever else, like, no, you know, more people probably know who Chris Middleton is or like Kyle Kuzma is than know who Marlon Mack is or know. Mm-hmm. Who, right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, uh, Alvin Kamara. Right. And so as a result, there is a more, there, there's better luck there. Basketball is just a more public kind of, kind right. of interface for the yeah. players. Um, I think the other part of it is, and I've looked at the other two products uh, at least briefly, they weren't as good. It would make sense to me that the MLB one would have popped off because that one was basically you're collecting digital bobbleheads, right? Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, like that's a collectible. That makes sense. Uh, but it's in total, in its entirety, done about 700,000 in trades, which happens typically the first hour of trading on Top Shot every day. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah, the other one, Hashleets, uh, was a partnership between the NFL and the PA and something else. And it was like straight up like trading cards. Uh, you literally can't find it anymore. It doesn't yeah, exist. That's amazing. I, yeah. I also I also think there's another huge thing at play here, which is that fantasy football floats the NFL as a mechanism to get fans involved and interested in the team that isn't theirs. And the NBA being a non-helmet sport, being a sport that actively pushes their players into social spotlights and and ultimately like lets you take a stand on whatever you feel like, except for China, and it lets you, um, <laughs> you know, and, no, no, seriously, and it's, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's it is a much more fan-forward league. The NFL succeeds, and it can tell every fan in the stands that uh, they're going to take twenty dollars out of their pocket and then kick them out of the stadium, and each one of those fans would watch their team play the next day. The right. NFL taps into a, a part of our lizard brain that's like far more gladiatorial and 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 like warlike. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the true. NBA yeah. tech tiptoes the entertainment side of things in a perfect way. This is an extension of entertainment. This right. feels like a much more logical sport. I think the UFC is actually going to do quite well when they get into this because they have extremely passionate fans. I mean, into a place that's probably if you're paying $65 a pay-per-view already to watch a crappy card, there's no chance. I mean, there's, there's no chance you're not going to be interested in this knockout or this submission. And it lends itself to highlights. The NFL is a sequence of a hundred plays that happens throughout a game, with right. which there might be one or two things that actually matter. That, that's why yeah, I think I, it makes sense for the NBA is because it's a highlight sport. And this also allows them to do something with all that too much inventory, the basketball that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, last question. Jack, what were you going to say? I'm talking, yeah, you were I was going to say, I was just yeah. say one, one last very small thing. Is I know you guys both yeah. work in sports media. You know well enough that, you know, baseball fandom, people don't really care about teams that aren't their own. It's yes, very exactly. regional. Yeah, that's another football, thing. Yeah. Even though there's fantasy football, it is still extremely regionalistic. You probably care about your Absolutely. team and then maybe one other. Right, basketball. You follow players. I want to see what Dame's doing. Yeah, right? like I'm yep. a Pistons fan. I live in LA, but like, if Damian Lillard's going off for 45, I'm going to turn that on. 
Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. In, in some ways, this is you know the fancy football thing you mentioned. This could be the the same sort of golden goose that I, fits NBA. And uh, we already talk about you know your league pass team. Well, now you've got your league pass player moment. I mean, everything yeah. is a, is a nice derivative of the reasons we already like the NBA. It fits nicely. That I think I've been sold on from this podcast. Yeah. The last thing I was curious about, and I don't know, this is sort of maybe close to me, is is there a risk that the NBA says, you know what, we're going to tamper down the, the abundance of highlights. Like, if you want to see a highlight um, of something that happens, you can't just seek it out on the internet. you got to go buy a top shot. Is there a chance that the NBA uses this as a way of cracking down? It would go against what they've done throughout. Mm-hmm. Is there a chance that they say, you know, the ubiquity of highlights that you that we have been hands off on now that we're in cahoots with uh, Top Shot, you're going to have to buy a Top Shot in order to access the highlight. So I would be really surprised if only that, like, so why why does the NFL basically get away with that, like, stopping all, uh, like, videos on Twitter, right? Because they're the NFL, because they're the behemoth, because they can get away with it. The, the driving force of NBA fandom has been online lately, right? Like, right. that's where you're recruiting more fans because, I mean, people who aren't basketball fans see a, a crazy dunk or a block or a steal, and then they start watching or they start following or they start spending money eventually when we can get outside again to go to <laughs> stadiums. Um, and I think it would kind of be really antithetical or uh, antithetical or whatever, how I'm saying, supposed to say yeah. that word um, to basically what they've done thus far for them to be like, cool, we're putting on the clamps, no more YouTube clips, no more Twitter sharing, no more whatever, because I think they've seen for, for years, the kind of value right. uh, to them and the growth that they've had as a result of like, being the public league, being the yep. league that is always there when you want it to be around. That's right. And they're also, they're not, they're not in the business of having that conversation with Turner or ESPN right. about the exclusivity that they've paid for to show the games uh, and how that's going to be evaporating into another commodity that only the NBA is benefiting from, unless they somehow work that into the contracts too. And, 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 and maybe the they thing, have, because yeah. the, the, yeah. the clips from, on moments are yeah. actually pulled straight from ESPN and TNT gameplay yeah. Yeah. and regional yeah. and regional uh, yeah. networks like, and sure all that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, one of the things that now I'm thinking about this is that like the, the, the first question I had about the monopoly of uh, this one manufacturer, I mean, who's to say that another top shot company can say, can come and own the classic highlights and the NBA can sub-license to them for just the classic highlights. And then you, there won't be a competitive market of NFTs for highlights to trade. Like, that that could totally happen. And it could. So this could I, just I would be doubt that it would if only because it seems like they're really happy with their partnership with Dapper. And I, I, at least I would assume they would, considering how much the, the growth has happened out of nowhere. Right. Um, I guess it, but, starting a new partnership is scary, especially in this space where there aren't a ton of, you know, companies that have really cemented themselves as, like, we do this, we do it well, yeah, yeah, yeah. we do it right. above board. Yeah. Right now, absolutely. I'm thinking like sort of years down the road. I mean, oh, yeah. just because the fact is that uh, Dapper has created a market. And once that's like kind of why they're going to be so big and down the road, there are going to be smaller companies that I'm sure are going to nip their market share as this is proven out in different ways. Like, and I could see leagues benefiting doubly um man i you know the more i talk I, I came into this as a skeptic and now i'm sort of thinking like okay this is like something we really need to pay attention to 
even more. I don't know if I'm going to get into it because I'm like you. Like, I don't exactly have a lot of disposable income to throw around. Um, but now I'm starting to see, like, kind of – I mean, I, I knew this was a big deal. But I can kind of now understand why it's a big deal and why it's not a fad and why there's appeal for consumers, which is my biggest question. You know, why pay for highlights? Okay, now it makes a little more sense. Yeah. This is good. I want to do a follow up, uh, follow up conversation in a, in a few months, maybe in, I don't know, call it NBA finals time frame, and, and just see where this is all going. It feels like such a rapidly moving conversation, um, education, you name it. And, uh, and I'm sure you're going to have your finger on the pulse. Uh, throughout I, I feel like we should wrap this up we've taken a lot of, yes. of, your, of your time and and ultimately I could probably ask questions for days I, I quite literally took <laughs> took notes because uh, oh, wow. I'm I am very interested in this uh, and about so, to empty your wallet in. <laughs> and that new pack drops pretty shortly I hope I can get one I probably won't <laughs> um, but uh, I do plan on trying um, and so uh, this has been great very illuminating Super um, great we will link out. I'm sure Mike will um, will promote the, the piece that you wrote. It was fantastic. Um, anything else that you're uh, that you're doing right now that we can be on the lookout for? Yeah, you guys have been. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me. You guys have been great uh, stuff. Now, uh, you know, no other real pieces in the works right now. Uh, cool. I'm going to be on uh, one of my favorite podcasts, All Fantasy Everything. If I'm going to plug that uh, Ooh, this coming okay. week uh, with Ian Carmel, uh, going cool. back on there, and then. Also, I just want to plug, shout out to the Ringer Union for getting that deal done. Yes, uh, very proud absolutely. of my former coworkers. Um, one union, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. We've had a, a number of current and former Ringer staffers on this show. Uh, and we're obviously in very similar spaces as the SB Nation. So I'm obviously not a part of the Vox Union anymore. But I'm thrilled for the Ringer uh, Union to finally passing. And I hope that this makes digital publishing a slightly less sketchy and a slightly more uh, regimented and effective tactic to sort of keeping, I mean, there's just so much talent in the industry that's falling by the wayside. And I just hope that this will help maintain that. So yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Shocker Sam- cool. Salmon, you're on Twitter at Shocker Salmon, right? Yep. Shocker Salmon. Salmon, excuse Simon me. Across platforms. No, you're I'm fine. Sorry. It's, it's spelled weirdly. I'm from Syria. Don't worry about it. But yeah, <laughs> cross platforms, you can find me at Shocker Simon. It's not spelled how you think it is, but that's okay. Uh, okay. It's spelled. Oh, <laughs> not like Wichita State. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, this was terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully, like, to me. those who are skeptical of the Top Shot thing, like myself, this really illuminates it very well, this podcast. So, anyway, we'll be back next week. Probably a trade deadline. Locker room mm-hmm. next week, right? Trade them. Feels about right. Week. Yep. God, I feel like there are going to be no trades because all the GMs are too busy with COVID uh, compliance issues. They and, just don't have enough time to actually evaluate players. But that's a separate. thirteen teams in each conference are in the playoff hunt. But it's okay. We'll, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll have a chat about that. Next yeah. Time. I'll take Bradley Bill for Bradley Bill for Delon Wright straight up. Okay, that's <laughs> it. The, no, you're never coming on this podcast again. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see you next time on the Limited Upside Podcast.